You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Last week we started this series, like Tyler said, called Rose, Rooms, and Recliners. It's highlighting the three different environments where Severe Heights has adopted and embraced to help us become more like Christ. Uh, Last week in particular, we highlighted the rows, like meaning the seats that you sit in. Each week on Sunday in the city of Knoxville, tens of thousands of people leave their houses, drive around the corner, perhaps across town, and pull into a parking lot of a church building. Perhaps the church building is like 100 years old, 25 years old, or maybe it's a storefront building that's been converted to a church. Perhaps it's even a school that the church is leasing their auditorium. Well, when they walk into that building, they sit in one of those. Perhaps it's bleachers, perhaps it's a pew, but they sit in a row. And as they sit in the row, there's music, there's a message, there's a reading of God's word, and there's prayer. Followed by oftentimes like, like a moment in which we, we get up and we leave. What James said last week is there is something that happens in a row. Jesus alluded to it in Luke 6. James talks about it in James 1. What happens in a row is an amount, tremendous amount of self-deception. Meaning we sit there and we think, okay, job done, and we go back to our homes. Jesus said the problem is we're not doing what we learn in the row. The rows were intent to make us more like Christ. Jesus presses in and he says the issue that takes place in a row, when you listen to God speak, you should do something. If we think that we've done something simply by showing up, James says we're self-deceived. We think the point is sitting here, but the point is actually doing what Jesus taught. Now, James highlights there's a reason that we don't do something. You would think that James would say, oh, it's a rebellious heart or uh, it's laziness. But it said James pushes in. He said, no, let me tell you the reason that majority of people don't do what the Bible says after sitting in a row. He says it's forgetfulness. Meaning something happens between the row on a day like today and your residence. It causes you to forget to do the thing that God, that God wired in you to do. So, so we pressed in on behalf of the row. And we talked about the deceitfulness of the row. We talked about the forgetfulness tied to a row. And then James said, let me give you some practical ways that you know the row is making a difference. He continues in the verse. He said, how's your mouth? Like if you could pick one thing. How's your mouth? Because it's an indication of what your heart is. If you're following Jesus and you're sitting in a row, it should impact our speech because it impacts the heart. Second thing he said is, are you taking care of anyone other than yourself? Because James says, you'll know a row at a local church is making a difference when you start to take care of widows and orphans, those that are in need. The third question that he pressed in, he's like, if you want to remember to see if it's making a difference... Is there a chance that you're just like everyone else because the row was intended when you open God's word to be different from the world? As a follower of Jesus, you should be different. And we ended last week with this question. How do you take something you hear in a row and you increase the chances of holding on to it? And so now we have the privilege of looking at the rooms. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 2. And I want us to look at a story that it kind of sets thing up, things up for where we're headed on the topic of the row. Um, there's a man in this story that can't walk. He can't stand. A waist-high world will walk past him day after day as he lay there on a mat. We're not sure if this man was born paralyzed. But if he was, imagine, imagine what it would be like as a child that's 
born paralyzed, watching other kids run, dance, and play. But you're limited to the mat. And perhaps it impacted other elements of his body, like his, his speech. His other kids could sing. Perhaps he was slow, and he struggled. Maybe he was born crippled, but, but maybe he wasn't. And maybe it was tied to an accident. I can't help but wonder if there was a time when he was known more for his ability than his inability or his disability. Can't help but wonder if there was a day that he could outrun everyone in the class. You can't help but wonder if there was a time that he was the strongest person in Capernaum. I can't help but wonder if there was a day when all the other kids in Capernaum wanted to be just like him. And perhaps his disability was a result of an accident. He took a terrible fall or something happened. And, and the pain in his head and neck area were unbearable. But the numbness tied to his arms and his legs were worse. His feet would hang like ornaments beneath his legs. His hands would dangle like empty sleeves connected to his side. You see, he could see his, his feet, his legs, his hands and his arms. He just couldn't feel them. Well, it doesn't matter if he was born crippled or there was an accident that left him crippled. The end result was the same. You ready? He was totally dependent upon other people. And the mat that he laid on was a constant reminder Someone would have to wash his face. Someone would have to bathe his body. He couldn't blow his nose. He couldn't wipe his mouth. He couldn't go on a walk. And if he ran, he would wake up in the middle of his dreams to a body that couldn't even roll over and couldn't go back to sleep. His closest friends, a group of guys, they longed for the day that God could restore what a tragedy stole from him. Hands that could grip Arms that could swing, legs that could run, and feet that could dance. And these friends would do anything to get him to God. The reason this story in Mark 2 is so powerful is because without these friends, this man never meets Jesus. Without these friends, this guy never gets healed. And without the friends, he would never experience forgiveness. Let's read together what happens, Mark 2, verse 1, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come alone. So Jesus is back into town. His popularity is skyrocketing. And the friends of this man that is crippled and confined to a mat, they want to get him to Jesus. They're willing to do whatever it takes. But the problem is words out about Jesus being back. And since words out, everyone shows up. They've traveled from everywhere, all across Israel. And if you were to look at the house in which Jesus is located, it's almost like there's different groups divided. Like, like there's a group that looks like they just got out of battle. They're bandaged, they're bruised, they're crippled. And there's a segment of older people that they're sore and they're eaten up with sadness. There's groupings of young people holding babies with broken hearts. There's groupings of men that have their kids in need of healing. There, there's groupings of women that aren't able to have children, and they're all gathered at this one house because the people were curious, is Jesus real? Is Jesus right? And they're all hoping for both. By the time the friends arrive carrying him on the mat to the place, the house that Jesus is teaching in is already packed with people. Verse 2, so many gathered there, there was no room left. 
not even outside the door. And Jesus preached the word to them. Meaning people jam the doorways. Kids are probably sitting in the windows. Some are on their tiptoes looking over the shoulders of people in front of them. All anxiously listening to the voice of Jesus. Looking into the face of Jesus. Verse 3, some men came. Bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd. Now before we continue, there are some things to consider. How would these friends get Jesus' attention? Would they choose to go in or simply give up? Think about it. No one would have blamed them for giving up. They'd carried him this far and the room is packed. They've done so much for this guy for so many years. Not to mention it's getting late. And it gets cold when it's late. No one would blame these guys for going home. They'd made it this far. They'd understand. But, but one of the four friends, he's got a bright idea. He's like, look, we can't get in from this way, but we can go around the side of the house and we can climb to the road. But we'd have to do it so slow. Like, I'll grab a corner, you three grab the other corners, and we will slowly walk around the house till we get to the top. And we can take bits and pieces of the roof of the house off and grab a, low, a rope, and we can slowly, at the same time, like carefully, lower our friend to Jesus. One guy would speak up, there's no doubt. I don't know, it's too risky, we could fall. Another guy would speak up, too risky, how about too dangerous? He could fall. Another would speak up, it's too much. This is not our house, it's not our roof, people would be bothered. Another could say it's too intrusive, like that's Jesus, the one that's the miracle worker, that claims to be the son of God, and we'd be interrupting his schedule. Nevertheless, these four friends decided to go all in. Verse 4, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and they lowered the man that was lying on, lowered the mat the man was lying on. So they climbed slowly around the house to the top of the house, tore pieces of the roof off, and lowered the man on the mat slowly, carefully, in the presence of Jesus. You ready for this? Faith and friendship. They do these types of things. And it always gets the attention of God. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, for just a second, I want us to think about Jesus' words. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus not only does something and says something that no one expected, Jesus does something and says something that no one requested. Four friends are just looking at each other. Did, did you say anything about him needing forgiveness of sins? No, obviously the reason we brought him here, Jesus, is he's crippled, he's paralyzed, he's confined to a mat. Jesus, everyone knows the story. And Jesus, this man is in need of, of physical healing. The friends are confused by Jesus' statement. And the religious leaders in the room, they're angry. Verse 6. Some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, by the way, isn't that kind of weird? Uh, a house packed with people in need of healing. Women, kids, senior adults. And the religious leaders have the best seats in the house. They're bothered, and they said, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. One thing you read and learn in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is, if you're critical of Jesus in your heart, 
You're critical of Jesus in your words and you're around Jesus. Usually it gets exposed. Let's know what happens next. Verse 8. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, all right, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat and walk. And everyone in the room with Jesus, everyone that can hear him make this statement, is becoming aware of something probably for the first time. From God's perspective, for us, what's often most urgent to us may not matter the most to God. You see, these friends brought their friend to get physical healing, and so did most everyone else. It's urgent. But Jesus gives the man forgiveness, the very thing that's most important and matters the most to God. Let's be honest. For most of us, forgiveness is not near the top of our urgent list. We are driven by things like this man and his friends. Perhaps it's our health. Perhaps it's finances. Perhaps it's an opportunity. Maybe it's power or influence. But not so with Jesus. I want you to consider this. Did you notice Jesus asks, is it easier? Meaning, okay, is it easier for me to give this guy physical healing? Uh, Or is it easier for me to give this guy forgiveness? He's asking, is it easier? Let's look at it from God's perspective. Let's think about which is easier by thinking about which is more painful for God. Physical healing, I'm telling you, it's easy. No problem to God. Forgiveness, it hurts. Physical healing, in this moment, it would take place in a house, among friends, with just a word from Jesus. Forgiveness, it happened on a hill, not among friends, but between two thieves. And it wouldn't be a word, it would be the life of Jesus. Understand, the people in this room didn't understand What was urgent for them? This man's physical healing wasn't the most pressing thing to God. His forgiveness of sins. Watch what happens. Verse 10. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man on the mat. And he said, stand up. Pick up the mat. And go home. And the man jumped up, he grabbed his mat, and he walked out to the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Let's get practical with the story. Last week we talked about Rose. Rose happened on Sunday in a large setting, this room. And uh, some people describe Rose this way, like there's a sage on the stage. I wouldn't go that far with me, but... There's one person versus all of you. Let's talk about rooms. Rooms don't just happen on Sundays. They happen every day. A smaller setting, and there's no sage on the stage. There's a bunch of friends looking eyeball to eyeball at each other, offering the very thing that these four offered for the man on the mat. Encouragement, accountability, belonging, and care. Severe Heights, we believe in rooms. I asked the question, like, like, how do you increase the odds of holding on to the very thing that you hear in a row on Sunday? I'm telling you, you get into a room any other day of the week. It's the one place that we offer 
a setting for every demographic represented in this room. Even for every demographic that's not represented in this room. And on behalf of the story in relation to the rooms, you ready for this? We've all got one of these mats. Promise you. It may not be just like his. Your mat, my mat might be different. It could be dependence. Like we're, we're stuck on a mat where we're dependent upon something or someone to an unhealthy level. Some of us, our mat is the secret that we've been holding on to for weeks or months or maybe years. For some of us, our mat is we feel vulnerable. Others, it's a weakness. Some, it's brokenness. And others, our mat that we carry everywhere, we're part of a, a family. It's just not normal. Can I tell you something on behalf of the mats? You ready? We're usually embarrassed by our mat. We're likely to hide because of our mat. And we think people want to avoid us because of our mat. But I have good news. People come together around mats. You just look at the story of Mark 2. Each corner of that mat served as a connection point. And people come together around mats. I'm telling you, we've all got one of these mats. And we all need some of these friends. When you read Mark 2, friends like these, they know all the details about your mat. They aren't afraid of irrational commitment for your well-being. And friends like these, they don't ask, all right, what's in it for me? I'm telling you this, on behalf of the room, when we look at the story, it's always better to go in than it is to give up. You know, we've talked a lot about a room setting today. There, there is a room that you can go in instead of give up. Immediately after this service in the back right section of this building, to tell you more about this church and the rooms that are offered, there is a room setting after services where you can take a step here and to talk to people about whatever it is next. There are rooms that are offered throughout the week. I'm telling you, on behalf of this room, it's always easier, it's always better to go in than it is to give up, but it's not easier to go in. It's easier to give up. On behalf of the room, you think of the story, it encourages us when we need it the most. Think about the man on the mat. This was the moment that he needed encouragement the most. The same happens at rooms at severe heights. On behalf of the room, you think of the story, it puts us in tune with the voice of God. These friends went to extreme efforts in a crowded house to go above and beyond to lower a man through the roof of a house just to let him hear the voice of God. And on behalf of the room, a room forces us to look into the direction of God. Can't you just imagine as they're slowly lowering the mat, carefully, one corner at a time. And the man that's paralyzed slowly twists his head. You can see Jesus like sunlight hitting his hair because of the roof is gone. And, and articles of dust and debris are, are in his hair and his shoulders. And Jesus looks over and seeing the faith of these friends. He smiles, but he notices the eyes of the man on the mat. And on behalf of the room, I'm telling you, rooms at Severe Heights remind us what we need, not just what we want. We need forgiveness, we need grace, we need mercy, but the things that we want feel so pressing, so urgent. Just because it's urgent and pressing to us doesn't mean it's what's most important to God. What we learn from the story of Mark 2 is what we embrace 
at severe heights on behalf of rooms. Understand, God uses people to heal people. And you and I are better together. Mats and all. As we close today, I have a few convictions that I want to tell you on behalf of why we have rooms. These smaller settings, whether it's on campus or in homes across the city, I don't want you to forget these. Number one, conviction number one is don't travel through life alone. A thousand years before Jesus, you had King David, David of David and Goliath fame. David has a son named Solomon, and Solomon would be the next king after David of Israel. And Solomon was given the gift of wisdom by God. Solomon is credited with these words in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 about traveling through life alone. Listen to this. Two are better than one because they got a good return for their labor. And now um, he picks three bad scenarios that take place when you and I travel through life alone. Verse 10, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. I can't read that verse. I'm going to date myself. I can't read that without thinking of 18. B.A. Baracus, pity the fool. All right, scenario number one. Scenario number one, he says, the reason you don't travel alone is you will slip, trip, stumble, and fall. Meaning, let's think about the context of when Solomon's writing. There are shepherds. A shepherd is tending sheep in the middle of a pasture all by himself suppose he takes a fall and he twists or breaks his ankle and he's stuck there as it gets dark in the middle of the night it's trouble versus if he turns his ankle and someone's there with him they will help they will bring assistance they can bring him to safety Solomon's reminding us when it comes to life sooner or later we'll all fall Scenario number two, verse 11. Also, he says, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? This is a verse about spooning. Back then, they had no weather apps, no forecast, no radar. But weather, on behalf of a shepherd, could come out of nowhere. He could experience hypothermia because he's left out in the cold. But if he had a friend there... The friend could provide warmth. I'm telling you, Paul, Solomon said it is dangerous to travel alone. Scenario number three, verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Meaning, you travel alone long enough, you'll be surprised by thieves. You can get mugged. And think about the thieves that the New Testament highlights. Thieves that have come to steal, kill, and destroy the very thing that God has intended for you. Solomon lets us know you got a better chance defending yourself if there's more than yourself on the scene. Close us with these words. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken, meaning alone you're a thread. Together, you're a rope. And there will be a day that you fall. You get caught in the cold. You get mugged. Two are better than one. Don't travel through life alone. I'm going to ask a question today. Are you traveling alone? Meaning, are you banking on the fact that just the row is going to take care of you? Uh, Some people make statements to me. I've heard it before. Like, Tim, I'm fine right now. Like, like, we're doing good. Financially, I'm, I'm great. My job's great. Family's great. I know how to apologize when I'm wrong. I really don't need the room setting. Okay, I want you to understand this. Did it ever dawn on you 
that someone else might need you. Like not everyone else is going through the great season that you're going through. And by the way, you don't know what's around the bend. Eventually you will fall. Eventually you will get caught in the cold. And eventually something will be stolen from you. And it is better to have a group already in existence. If you're not in a group now, I'm telling you, when something happens, it's going to be too late to find one. So conviction number one, don't travel through life alone. Some of you might say, okay, Tim, you're just trying to get us to become friends. Eh, Yes and no. I'm talking about friends on purpose. Number two, conviction number two, the purpose of the room is discipleship. And as we learned last week, discipleship, according to Jesus, is a total renovation. It's a teardown buildup, a total renovation of the heart, the mind, and the imagination. Jesus said it in Luke 6, the Sermon on the Plain, the student is not above the teacher. But everyone who is fully trained will be like the teacher, like the Christ. This is discipleship. When you get in a room, you discuss life, the challenges and the, and the obstacles, and you're like, man, how do I help you? How do you help me become more like Jesus? How would Jesus feel about the person? How would Jesus think about my situation? How would Jesus respond to the circumstance? I'm telling you, the goal is discipleship. And discipleship, it happens in rows. But at severe heights, it happens at an even deeper level in a room because it's more specific They know your struggles. They know what you're going through specifically. They know your name. It's not a sage on the stage. It's eyeball to eyeball. They know when you're making a ton of money. They know when your house is foreclosed. They know when you're single longer than you ever dreamed. They know when you're a newlywed and this is not at all what you thought it would be. They know when you feel like you're single again and your spouse is not interested in counseling. Some of you might say, well, Tim, man, those situations are tough. Like, like they need professionals. You know what? They might need a professional. And we're willing to help find a professional. But it doesn't mean a friend disappears. Friends are there through thick and thin. We learned it in Mark 2 as these guys are carrying the four corners of the map. So, the room... The purpose of the room is all about discipleship. Number three, conviction three, you are the church. We're the church. The ministry of encouragement is found in these rows that should be taking place in the rooms. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he made this statement to the disciples. John 13, 34, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And he follows it with this statement. By this, everyone will know That you are my disciples if you love one another. So according to Jesus, a distinguishing feature of the Jesus community is observable gestures of love. And I'm telling you, it happens in a smaller setting better than it will ever happen in a row. We just saw it in Mark 2. In and of itself, a mat is just a mat. But with followers of Jesus, that mat became an observable gesture of love. Of love. Let me tell you one of the things that happens in a group setting in those smaller rooms. People take care of each other. They check in on each other. People even go to extremes where they cook meals for each other, especially in dark and discouraging and disappointing times. What is a meal? In and of itself, it's just a meal. It's not like they're going to starve. But for a follower of Jesus, 
Meals are more than meals. Meals are observable gestures of love. It's your way of telling someone, I know, I care, I love you. And how are you doing? For a follower of Jesus, it's the difference between DoorDash and discipleship. I'm telling you. The world's watching. Jesus said it. We're the church. And we've been called to observable gestures of love. Thoughtful deeds to show people that we love people. Conviction number four. This is the last one I'll give. Life is complicated. Don't travel alone. The purpose of the group is discipleship. We're the church. And life is so stinking complicated. Ready? And people are annoying. I'll add it in the mix. Don't take it from me. Take it from three guys much smarter than me. First, smart guy number one, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A pastor in Germany, think about this, during World War II. Talk about a challenge. Try, try being a, a leader in a local church that loves Jesus in Nazi Germany while the church is showing loyalties and love to Hitler. And God called this man to be more like Jesus in his book, Life Together. He makes this statement. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, that's us with each other, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, even with ourselves. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. He says, the bet, he said, the sooner you get to the ability to walk into a room knowing that it won't be perfect because it's filled with people, among whom is you, the better. Everyone is a little weird. Everyone is a little diff difficult, myself included. Smart guy number two. C.S. Lewis. Some of you know some of his writings like Chronicles of Narnia, The Problem with Pain, Mere Christianity. I want to read this from his book, The Four Loves. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. Written by a man who didn't get married until midlife. And then the person that he loved in a matter of months gets cancer and dies. He tells us there is no such thing as a safe relationship. People will leave. People will get sick. People will die. People will move on. Love is risky because life is complicated. And smart guy number three, Eugene Peterson. Many of you know he's the author of the message paraphrase. One of my favorite books that he's written is called Working the Angles. The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. According to Eugene, there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week. In rows, towns, villages, rooms. All over the world. Here we go. In these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called pastor. 
And given a designated responsibility in the community, the pastor's responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. And I'm doing that the best of my ability by telling you it's not going to happen just here. You want to increase the likelihood of remembering and actually doing the thing that God told you, you've got to get in a room. What Eugene Peterson is saying is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy statement. Worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom, I'm telling you, this pastor, I'm the worst. It's why I need a room. I'm telling you, on behalf of this, this topic of rooms, there's a question that a room addresses every time you meet. And the question is this, what does it look like to be faithful? When the choice to be faithful is not going to be fun. Because there are seasons of life where following Jesus is not fun. On behalf of today, just a little reminder. We've all got one of those mats. And we're all in need of some of these friends. Friends that will go in instead of give up. Friends that are there when we need it the most. Friends that position us to be in a spot where we are in tune with the voice of God. Friends like those friends that force us to look into the direction of Jesus. And friends like those friends where collectively we are reminded when we gather as followers of Christ, we're reminded of what we need. Grace, forgiveness, mercy. And not just what we want. And today as we leave, I just want you to remember one of these. Do not travel through life alone. You'll fall. You'll get stuck in the cold. You'll get mugged. Two are better than one. And the purpose of the room is deep discipleship. I'm telling you it's deep because it's eyeball to eyeball. There's love. There's care. And you are the church. Jesus said, the world will know us by our love. And I'm telling you, love is expressed organically in the life of a room. There are observable gestures of love going day after day to the rooms at Severe Heights. And by all means, do not forget the reason you need a room, the reason I need a room, is because life is so stinking complicated. And people can be annoying, among whom I'm probably the worst. Today with heads bowed and eyes closed. Can I remind you of what we talked about last week? There's something dangerous going on in a row today. Self-deception. You can think pulling into this parking lot, walking into this room, and finding your row is the point. Wrong. Jesus and James told us we have to do something. Don't, don't confuse yourself into thinking you're going to remember this. Remember, James said, something happens between the row and your resident that causes you to forget. So what's one thing that God has laid on your heart that you need to do? Father, I want to thank you for today. 
Thank you for the power of a room. Thank you for the beauty of the story of Mark 2, a reminder that we all have one of those mats. And we're all in need of some of those friends. Thank you that discipleship takes place in a row, but I thank you that it's even deeper within the confines of a room. And I pray this in Jesus' name.